All right, welcome everybody. So here today for a little bit of a talk about how uh, Incircus Services, which is a software product by DuPont Pioneer, how we actually went and moved to AWS uh, and are fully cloud hosted now. So hopefully you're in the right place um, and let's get started. Yeah, the clicker's having some problems still. So a couple of the things we'll go through today. Um, some intro and background, uh, and then get into some of the challenges and enablers. And so really the big piece there is probably what everybody wants to hear about is kind of how did we accomplish that? And so a little bit on the migration and kind of what was the process, how did we get to where we are today? And then some about the future as well and where we're trying to go now that we're hosted fully on AWS. So the big key takeaway um, that I'm sure uh, is important to everybody is this, what it takes to perform a lift and shift. So how many people know what a lift and shift is? The, the terminology of a lift and shift, good. So not speaking to newbies on this. Um, but really it's lifting your existing software and moving it out to the cloud. And so a, a big thing that I've been asked over and over again is why would you take this approach? And I think there's proponents that would say it's the right way to do it. There's others that would say it's not the right way to do it. Um, you should actually look at re-architecting. And so really it's picking up your existing software and moving them out to a cloud provider um, or even another data center, um, if that's what you're thinking of doing. But really it's because re-architecting is very expensive. So the minute you start to re-architect your application, it's gonna come with a high cost. The risk mitigation is another big reason. And so uh, for us specifically, um, we had a lot of challenges with our on-prem data center. And so this was a great opportunity for us to move to a better provider uh, in AWS. And then quick wins, uh, really taking advantage of some of the cloud services that are available and being able to integrate those immediately into your application uh, is a big part of it. And how can you quickly add value rather than uh, being stagnant and using what's in front of you uh, at the current moment and instead use um, new innovative solutions. And then HA uh, and DR, of course, are a big thing. You always hear about that, of course, with the cloud. Um, but what I like to say, it's also disaster prevention. Uh, and I'll get into this a little bit too, but a big part of this for us specifically was, you know, cut back on resources available from our on-prem data centers. And so we were running into a situation where now that we are more of a actual consumer uh, commercial software uh, organization, that we needed uh, technology that's going to enable us to innovate. And so that was a big part of it is kind of preventing that disaster that could occur. So maybe a little bit just to get a feel for kind of who's in the audience here. Um, so how many of you work for a company of greater than 1,000 people? So quite a few. Uh, how many of you, your entire company is on AWS? Okay, got a couple. Then what about just your specific area? Any of you just all in for your specific business unit maybe or area that you support? So got a couple people there. Perfect, uh, and, and that I would say is where I would um, put myself in my organization. Um, people who have some workloads on AWS. So most people, so that's really good. So the terminology hopefully that I'll get into later on won't be new to most people here. And then how many are considering a migration to AWS? Good, so this will be good content I think for all of you. And then anybody that doesn't think AWS is right for them. Perfect, all right, that's what I wanted to prove is Everybody's kind of bought in, that's why you're here. All right, so some background. Um, maybe just first myself, I'm Bryce Hemme, uh, Director of Platform Engineering uh, from Des Moines, Iowa, um, so right in the center of the US. 
and you know, went to University of Iowa, uh, worked in agriculture for a number of years now, um, and then backgrounds really in software engineering and cloud architecture. So the, the company names there you see, uh, or product names maybe I should say as well, um, give you a little bit of information about them, just so you have some context on what we're doing as an organization. Um, that kind of makes maybe a little bit more sense as you see the rest of the talk here. So Dow and DuPont, uh, I assume most people probably recognize those two logos, two major companies. Uh, so they merged in 2017. There's another company, DuPont Pioneer, um, which is a company that I work for uh, directly, and that is a seed company that's owned by DuPont, now part of DuPont uh, and Dow. And then we have Granular. So as you can see, I'm talking about Granular here in the bottom left uh, of the slides. It's a software company that we recently acquired um, and are starting to really focus all of our efforts around our commercial software business around the Granular uh, brand name and company. So those are some of the products that kind of fall into that. So Mapshots being one of those. Mapshots is a company out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and they are also a software company um, for agriculture. And then uh, Encirca is a software product that was developed by DuPont Pioneer and now is part of the Granular organization. So maybe a little bit too on what uh, is digital agriculture and why some of this actually matters. So this right here, uh, this used to be you know, very advanced in its day. This is how you used to harvest corn uh, and the machinery at that point in time was extremely advanced. Now you have this, you have really robust machinery, uh, high-end, uh, very technical machinery. And like just the size of them alone, you can see just in this picture here, they're massive machines. And so there's a lot of technology in there. And yes, this is my son trying to supervise his uncles and tell them how to do their job. But I guess you'll get that of a four-year-old. So the other thing, though, that is really important why this matters and the cloud has been necessary for our use case is these tools are really now focused on software. And so it's not so much the hardware. Obviously, the hardware still matters. The machinery still matters. But it is software. And so very focused on tooling for growers. And so in the cab, even, there's software everywhere. And that's actually a quite old picture. That's about 10 years ago, actually, um, those systems. So they're far more advanced today. And really, the whole idea is how do we get to the point where we know everything about the land that we're actually farming? And so productivity, profitability um, are really the key aspects here. And so our products, I'm not going to go much more into this, but just for clarity's sake, some of the products we're producing. So in circus services really is focused on uh, profitability, sustainability, and productivity for growers. And that's really what the drive is and why moving to the cloud and being innovative is absolutely necessary. So from an engineering perspective, uh, it's a group of about uh, 300 plus engineers today. Um, as of about four years ago, it was actually just four of us. And so it's a group that's grown very quickly. And that's another reason why uh, AWS was critical to our needs to scale the organization. Uh, we have Windows, Linux, massive uh, computing clusters, massive databases that are involved here. And so it's really a uh, pretty wide range of technology underneath the hood. And we started an on-premise data center actually running in the middle of Iowa, um, which that's great if you're, all your customers are around there, but there's not a lot of good connectivity back into the middle of Iowa. So that also was a little bit of our challenge. And then we had a small cloud footprint really start in 2013. And so it's not that we just up and moved one day. It was really a progressive um, movement to AWS. So before I go much further, I got to acknowledge the team that did a lot of this work. Um, so they did a lot of the work to just get us fully moved over to AWS. Um, you'll see somebody does have a two by four in this picture, which uh, the team had a trend of playing pro wrestling theme songs. And so it, uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, group of people, but they did a great job and that's what we're gonna dive into now. So the, the challenge here, really. 
So thinking about what are the drivers? So we've kind of touched on them already. So growing company with reduced budgets. So I think a lot of people are feeling squeezed from an IT perspective. Um, I hear that a lot from large enterprises. And so we had that situation. We also had your typical silo between dev and ops. And obviously we wanted to bring those together. And so we needed to come up with a solution for that. Uh, automation. So I don't know how many people have a data center where it's fully automated. Uh, I haven't ever seen uh, many in an enterprise setting where they are fully automated. Uh, nothing like you can do, obviously, with AWS. Um, but there are some people that have accomplished this, but I think it's few and far between. And so the other piece, desired autonomy, was a big one for us. And then, of course, innovation, moving fast, and lastly, reliability. So I think these are all things that uh, it's hard to argue with any of these. It's just a matter of how do you get there, and that's really what our challenge was in front of us. So diving more into kind of what are some of the steps here. So convincing leadership. This was uh, challenge number one, I would say, and uh, probably one of the most sticky ones uh, to start off. So I'm sure people have heard this question from uh, maybe their business stakeholders, the people who maybe hold the purse strings uh, when it comes to your software development and engineering. So why would I leave a data center that cost me nothing? So for m most organizations, business units, the, the IT group, the data center, for the most part, is just something that exists, and that cost is kind of hidden um, in most cases. And so it seems like it doesn't cost much for them directly. And so that's one of the things that we had to address up front was how do we quantify this? What are the ways that we can show that there's actually significant value in moving to the cloud and actually doing this whole lift and shift? So some examples, um, just thinking about you know, the cost of slowing the innovation. And so for us, that was a huge thing uh, where we knew we had to be on the bleeding edge to keep pace with our competitors. And then some of it around the dev and the ops silos, right? So obviously DevOps, it's not a new thing, um, but I think in a lot of enterprises it is uh, fairly new and it's starting to be uh, adopted more widely. But that is another thing we had to uh, really try to quantify. What is the gains we're gonna get if we bring those two functions together? And then the reliability was another really big one for us. And so we had a you know, great data center, really. It's quite good, but it wasn't as reliable as what Amazon's data centers are gonna be. And so that was another great selling point for us. And then this is one where I think we, at least I think we did, uh, we got a lot of help um, just from others. So if you think about uh, some of the television commercials you see, uh, certain companies really marketing the cloud and talking about the cloud uh, in just mainstream media. So that's something that we use to our advantage. And so everybody's going to the cloud, so why shouldn't we? Um, that, that's one of the, the pieces we had uh, that we used to our advantage. Also our customers, even when you bring up, oh, we're in the cloud, that's actually something significant. So I think that's, that's a really key thing to try to sell and uh, use to your advantage. So now what? You have leadership convinced. This is where it gets really interesting, right? So before maybe you had a whole separate IT operations group, support group that handled a lot of the management infrastructure, management of your systems, uh, and just the general operational needs. Now you have to worry about all the platforms, right? So Windows, Linux, databases, uh, appliances, uh, talk about vendor lock-in. Uh, that's perfect place for vendor lock-in. Infrastructure, so all of these are highly important things that obviously somebody probably is doing today. Now, maybe that's your group already. Maybe that's your team. But in a lot of cases, that's not. For us, that was not the case. It was actually a separate uh, part of the organization that was actually supporting some of the infrastructure here. And then some of these core services that I think it's really easy to forget. 
So things such as DNS, uh, all the way down to compliance, security, uh, generally monitoring, things like that. So a lot of these are really sticky. I'll call out appliances again, because that is a really sticky one. I think most enterprises will fight with this uh, as they move to the cloud. So things like web application firewalls or uh, API gateways um, as some examples. Apple, so mobile apps, builds for mobile apps. Uh, I know at least for us, we had a lot of uh, builds that were happening on-prem on Apple uh, servers running in our data center. Well, you can't forget about those. You still have to maintain those. And uh, if you don't know, you can't run that out in AWS uh, so easily. So that's a problem you have to solve as well. And then all of these, like I said, right, these are things that are easy to forget about. Uh, depending on your line of business, the uh, compliance regulations, these can be really messy to have to deal with. Um, luckily, AWS helps with a lot of that, with things like uh, HIPAA and uh, some of the other compliance standards that uh, they are able to meet. But again, they're things you're going to now have to worry about. So some of the challenges. Let's jump into those. So people and skills. Clearly, you need people to do the work to get you out to AWS uh, and perform the lift and shift. So for us, that was uh, an initial issue we had up front. But we actually, I think, got lucky. Um, I don't think we were actually thought through this very well, and it just kind of fell into our lap. Um, but really what was key for us is we ended up hiring a lot of these skills really early, I'd say before we even had a need. And so it helped us get to a point early on where we at least had a core set of knowledge internally. And then we had a number of people, uh, I'd probably throw myself in that list, who were kind of the evangelists. So people who were kind of standing behind uh, AWS as a solution and where we wanted to get to and where we wanted to move. And so that was also a very big piece. And then I think lastly, the big piece here is the AWS solutions architect. So um, I'm assuming most people coming from large organizations, you're going to have direct contact with a solutions architect at Amazon. And that is something that I think if you use your advantage, you'll get uh, quite a bit of mileage out of it. So another fun one, um, admin connectivity. So how do you get connectivity from your corporate network out to AWS? So into a VPC, uh, for example. So for us, uh, we had an issue there, um, and I don't think this is probably uh, anything unique, that you know, getting direct connect set up, so a dedicated VPN connection between your corporate network and AWS just wasn't gonna happen. Uh, it would have been a significant amount of work to get the right people lined up to help us with that. So, we took uh, a couple different runs at different solutions. What we did end up with that surprisingly has worked very well for us over the years is setting up Bastion hosts out in AWS. Uh, they're jump servers basically to allow you to proxy all your traffic into the VPC. So these are hardened hosts that are facing the internet uh, and can be locked down obviously to IP ranges if you want to say only coming from my corporate proxies. But this allows you to, to route all traffic into the network. Um, this allows you to also uh, uh, build out this hub and spoke model. And so there's some links at the bottom here, but Amazon kind of recommends this if you go down this path of building out a hub and spoke VPC uh, configuration. And so all traffic can get to all different regions and uh, VPCs that you have set up. So that is a, a unique solution, I would say, that isn't talked about a lot, but it has worked quite well for us. So monitoring and learning. Um, I'm sure many of you have, you know, on-premise data centers with monitoring and learning with probably Nagios or some similar tool. So this is something we were going to lose, and so we had to solve for that. Uh, CloudWatch is a pretty big step in the right direction there. And so we obviously use CloudWatch just like just everybody else in AWS does, but we also invested heavily in SaaS solutions. 
So for us, that's Sumo Logic, um, but you name your SaaS provider for log aggregation uh, and monitoring, and uh, it would help you a ton to go down that path. And so for us, uh, the, the first step we had here was actually to go towards uh, Elk Stack, so Elastic Cache and Logstash, uh, or sorry, Elasticsearch, Logstash, uh, and Kibana. And as we grew, that didn't scale to our needs, and so that's when we moved to Sumo Logic, and had pretty good luck there. So source control. So this is always a kind of sticky one of, you have all your source control on premise. That's gonna be a problem. Uh, how do you get that actually built and shipped out to the cloud? So the, the approach we took, what I would recommend uh, anybody facing the same thing is figure out how you're gonna get this out into a solution that's out on AWS. And so for us, we're actually using GitLab, but we host our own GitLab uh, on EC2. And so GitLab.com, GitHub, any of those obviously would work. Uh, we just took that approach, though, of hosting it ourselves um, for various reasons. But then building a scalable uh, pipeline for actually doing deployments uh, and builds is really important. And so we actually went ahead and built out Jenkins uh, to be highly uh, scalable, to actually launch slaves across different VPCs uh, and at different AWS accounts as well. Um, and we actually used uh, Jenkins DSL for that. Uh, we kind of built that out uh, to meet our specifications. And we had another library called Tauneer that we built. Uh, so some uh, custom in-house tooling that we ended up building just to meet our needs there. So that's something we're hoping to open source here at some point too. So authentication. So SAML 2.0, that's where we were. We're a large corporation, of course. Uh, large corporations end up with SAML 2.0 because of ADFS, right? Um, or you know, there are other providers, but it's primarily ADFS you're gonna hear people using when it comes to SAML 2. So for us, we were using that actually for customer logins. And so that was kind of messy. Um, we also had a appliance, so a security appliance that sat in front, uh, an actual gateway that would handle some of the authentication, and it kind of had a custom protocol that came with it. And so it was pretty messy to figure out how we're going to move that. Um, for us, the solution there was Cognito. Uh, I think the previous talk that was in this room was actually um, the GM for the identity platform at AWS, uh, announcing some good things about Cognito. I mean, today, Cognito is amazing. Uh, some of the announcements that he just made, I think, are going to really move it way ahead of anybody else in the market. So this is something. Got a question? The I didn't. So we used Active Directory, and so it was Active Directory, and we had ADFS exposed. So, yep. Um, so yeah, the, the Cognito move was a big one for us. Uh, we then started using JWTs everywhere for our API calls. That also helped us significantly. Um, there's a lot more that can be done there uh, that we haven't even taken advantage of yet. Uh, MFA, for example, or passwordless logins. Uh, and there's also new features coming from the sounds of it. So, so API gateway routing is another one. So we had a, an appliance uh, on-prem that was an API gateway. And so very heavy uh, on the vendor lock-in side of things. And so we had to solve for that very early on. This was one of the, probably the biggest enablers of everything that we've done, uh, mainly because it allowed us to now begin to route our traffic uh, to different AWS resources and uh, be able to scale with that as well very easily. So one of the things we had, so this authentication gateway that also served as an API gateway. So we had to solve for that. Um, the solution we used was actually built a uh, custom Apache-based gateway. 
And so just basically building out routes um, and then handling authentication within Apache as well. And so building that out as code, so CloudFormation, so it can scale out and scale back in very easily. Uh, and then the other challenge we had, which I think is uh, actually a kind of fun one, is the Cognito logins, it didn't exactly work with Apache out of the box. And so I have a link there, uh, ModAuth's JWT, uh, where we had to make some uh, changes to it to actually support uh, what would be called JWKS. And so it's a protocol behind uh, the JWTs and the service that is provided by Cognito that actually provides multiple public keys. And so there wasn't support uh, in ModAuth JWT. There is now. Um, so you can go to that link and get the project if you want it. So how many people use SQL Server, Microsoft SQL Server? Just a, so quite a few, good. So you guys will probably, this will resonate with you. Uh, so we have a very large SQL Server uh, setup. Part of the challenge there was a lot of the features that we needed aren't supported by RDS. Uh, we use Enterprise, uh, we use a lot of different features, uh, and we also have very large databases running uh, within that SQL Server instance. So the problem there then becomes we need to worry about high availability because we're gonna have to run this on EC2. So with that, you run into a couple challenges. So high availability out of the box from Microsoft supports all the Microsoft drivers just fine and they work just fine. But re the reality is not everybody's running C Sharp or other Microsoft languages. So then you have to solve for that. Um, us, we're a big Python shop. And so we had to actually go and figure out a way to handle the failover ourselves. So we used HA proxy for that actually in the middle. Is there a question back there? How do we handle backups? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that in just a second. Um, but good call out. A uh, couple of the things we had as other challenges is we had high disk IOPS. So reads and writes were heavy throughout the year at uh, certain periods. So we had to solve for that because just a straight EBS volume with provisioned IOPS wouldn't even get us what we needed. So we had to create an array array. So we had to have stripe sets underneath of it to actually get all the IOPS we needed. So for backups uh, specifically, we actually are using the standard SQL Server backups. Uh, we're shipping those out to uh, S3 and then we can restore directly off S3 if we need to. So does that help answer your question? Okay. <laughs> we can talk afterwards if you want. So, all right. Uh, let's see what else do we have. So, and then high availability groups is the other solution. So, using SQL Server out of the box for high availability groups. So, coupling to internal systems, there's not much you're going to be able to do about this without uh, actually doing a little bit of uh, engineering work. And so, that's one of the things that early on we were able to identify some of the dependencies. And with that, we were able to take advantage of some of the AWS services. So for instance, things like SNS and SQS uh, for kind of more pub sub, um, as well as just leveraging things like S3. And so how can we push data from on-prem and sync that uh, up through S3? So that was kind of the solution there. Um, I wouldn't say we have a perfect solution. There is no perfect solution for that, um, other than really digging in and having to uh, re-engineer some of this. So testing. So we're talking about a lift and shift. Kind of sounds like a big bang release. Um, that's one of the things we wanted to avoid as much as possible, uh, but it really isn't all that doable when things are fairly tightly coupled in the existing system and we're not re-architecting it from the ground up. And so that was one of the things we had to kind of think through, how would we approach that? And so kind of the way we approached that was we can do it in phases, obviously, through different environments. So development and test and uh, user acceptance, things like that. 
but really, how do we get that experience very early on um, so we know quickly what's happening? And so we kind of took a dogfooding approach to it. So how do we start to migrate our testers to the cloud-hosted environment so they get that experience right away? And how do we bring them back to on-prem as well so we can still feel like we're uh, doing the diligence to get on-prem releases out? Because we still need to have features going out the door while we're getting ready to do this lift and shift. So a lot of that just came down to kind of staging it and uh, kind of shifting users uh, based on who they are to the different environments. So maybe to walk through a little bit of this. Uh, so this is kind of how we're set up, very obviously high level picture. So you have your corporate data center, you have customers. We then kind of took the approach of what is the kind of lowest friction thing that we could start to switch. We kind of worked through that uh, in a priority order. So number one that came to mind for us was how do we just start to move DNS? So just move to Route 53. That's a pretty low friction thing. We were using uh, Ultra DNS at that time and we moved to Route 53, so pretty simple, but a good way to start. And then the next step was how do we get authentication uh, kind of decoupled from the on-prem systems? And so that's when we took on the work to kind of move to Cognito and start to use Cognito, but still uh, routing users to our on-prem systems for actual API calls and getting static content and things like that. So we started to wedge that in. And then it became a game of how do we get the source control moved over? How do we get the builds moved over? And so getting that done and then starting to deploy that back into the on-prem data center. From there, we were able to then pick up and start to actually move content out. So static web assets. So all our HTML, JavaScript, CSS and such, get that moved out to S3 and then we can start actually having testers go and start using that environment and just test that the content's coming back. And then we get to a point where we can start looking at how do we deploy much, much more. And now this is kind of the bigger piece of it. So again, running both of these in parallel side by side uh, so we can actually do the testing uh, and feel comfortable about it. And then when we get to the point where we do feel comfortable about it, we can start to look at how do we get the database updated and eventually kind of cut ties. And so that's exactly what we did. And that puts you now where you have customers and testers. And so that was super high level, obviously. Um, but kind of that staged approach is really what worked well for us and kind of rolling through all the different pieces to get those moved over. Yep. Yeah, so synchronizing uh, on-prem SQL Server to the cloud SQL Server. So we were actually taking incrementals and moving those up. So first step was obviously take a backup, uh, move that up, restore it, and then taking incrementals every 15 minutes and shipping those up uh, and taking those changes. And so when, uh, and I'll get into that here, but when we then went live, it was a matter of just waiting for that last snapshot basically of the incrementals and apply that. And so we basically had a live environment, just no users hitting that until the day we went live. So, like I said earlier, it was kind of a six month uh, process once we identified like, we need to just full sail do this and get it over with. Uh, so kind of working through things over the six month period. And then really it came down to, like I said, less than 15 minutes. It was pretty quick and we were back up and running. But then we did have some issues. So this is where some of the things we did early on actually helped quite a bit. So I talked about the monitoring and such. That's where things really started to help us. Um, with identifying issues in the system. So we ran into some issues with performance de being degraded. So this was a case of we had CDC as well as trying to create replicas of all the databases. 
um, and get those fully up to date and in sync. And so that was a, a challenge we had and uh, led to some performance degradation. But then we also uh, had a little bit of an issue that was an oversight um, by a few of us where we had a database in our non-production environment that didn't even come close to mimicking what was in production. And so it didn't come up as an issue early on because it really wasn't a database uh, that we used transactionally. It was more so just like a log of events that had occurred. And so it didn't appear as an issue. But then once we got to production, all of a sudden you have four terabytes of that data sitting there. That's a drastically different issue that you're dealing with from a database load standpoint. So that was uh, one of the bigger challenges we ran into. But the good thing was we were able to resolve those all throughout that evening um, and into the early morning hours, I guess I should say, too. But some of the monitoring is actually what really helped us here. So you can kind of see here, I have it kind of drawn out. So you start to see this performance degradation. So that's right when we did the cutover. And so you can see a massive spike in error rates. Of course, that's not good. And then we solved that problem, and then a couple of days later, we had a mistake in a deploy job. The key point here is we had monitoring in place that could pick this up really quickly and identify what was going on. But the other really uh, great thing, I think, is actually one of the more positive outcomes that I've seen here, too, that we actually have good data to back up, is kind of the API response time. So you can see when we started to shut down uh, the day of the migration, some of the non-essential processing. So taking some load back off the system, you can see that obviously we improve performance times a little bit. And then the minute we did the cutover, you can see the performance improving significantly and then that massive spike when we hit the degradation for a few minutes there. But then after that, you can see on AWS now, everything to the right, you can start to see that we have much better performance running on AWS. And a lot of that goes back to many different things, right? It's all the way from network latency has vastly improved from where we were at. Um, as well as just the general infrastructure we're running on, uh, we kind of lowered uh, the weight of some of that infrastructure. So, for instance, um, some of the stuff we did API, API Gateway, uh, it actually provided us a much more uh, flexible and streamlined platform rather than the appliance we had been using. So that really helped us improve performance. So the other way we were able to uh, actually feel like we added the value we had uh, said we would was by really soliciting some feedback from customers. So you'll be able to see just by reading this uh, kind of the personality of the general American farmer. Um, I actually had to remove some of the colorful language that was in here because um, he was pretty excited. But this kind of says it right here, uh, just directly from a customer hearing that things are massively improved uh, and they could feel it day one. So, so I'm going to talk a little bit just for a couple minutes about where we're going, um, what our plans are here. And I, I think this is where things, for me at least, uh, it feels very interesting and uh, kind of shows the advantage now of being on AWS and what we can do. So we're really looking now at how do we redesign most of what we're doing. So instead of doing that re-architecting up front, now we're going to do it. We've moved everything to AWS. Now we're in a position where we control our own destiny. So what can we do to actually uh, make the application better? So we have moved a lot of what we're doing over to API Gateway and Lambda, uh, running on Python. Um, and we're also working on an uh, effort to break up SQL Server. So how can we get to smaller databases and decouple uh, our teams and make them more autonomous? And so looking at, obviously, Postgres or Dynamo, um, Aurora, I, I should probably say as well, because that's really what we want to get to is Aurora as a platform. So event messaging, event sourcing, and then uh, the convergence of all the disparate systems where it makes sense. So the, the really interesting part of this, uh, in my opinion, is right here. 
So this is the environment we built with this whole lift and shift effort. And then what we're able to do now is just right next to it, start to build a brand new architecture from the ground up to get us to where we ultimately want to be. So cloud native. And so that's the process we're in the middle of right now. Uh, I'd say we've, we're not you know, done. We're gonna continue to evolve this. But what we've been able to do now is take advantage of things like cloud formation. So everything's defined as code. And so from the ground up, everything's in source control. You know every single change that's made to configuration and it's easy to deploy and repeatable. So these are things that we always desired in our on-prem environment. We couldn't fully get there. So we're finally starting to move in that direction and get to where we want to be. So with that, I think that is all I had. Um, I'm open for questions though, uh, so. Uh, it was actually a forum century appliance. I didn't catch the last piece. The... Yeah, so, so that is something I don't think we have uh, specific stats on to say, did we hit exactly what we had expected for um, whether it's return on investment or even what we had expected the cost to be. So we haven't done a full analysis on that, I wouldn't say. Yeah. Yeah, so I would say we probably went over. Um, I, I have never yet to this day, and this was earlier this year, I haven't gotten any negative feedback. Like everybody who's kind of the stakeholders has been super positive about it because what it's allowed us to do is actually move a lot faster than we had been able to in the past. Uh, and then along with that comes just general reliability of the infrastructure. Like that is a huge win for us. Um, so yeah, I wish I had uh, more specific metrics on that, but unfortunately I don't, so. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good example of that is like so the agriculture industry, uh, it's very seasonal in nature, right? You have planting, you have harvest uh, when the grain's coming out, and that's when a lot of our usage happens. It's when a lot of the data flows into the system. Uh, just now this year through harvest, which is in the fall in the U.S., we've seen significant improvements just because we're able to scale so much faster and to so many more servers. I mean, previously we had something like 20 uh, VMs running in the data center. Now we can go to hundreds and we're able to do that very easily, so. Back row. Did you have dedicated people working on this alone? Yes. Did you have people Yeah, so we did. We had a, uh, we had dedicated people working on this alone just to get like this final six month push uh, to get us over to AWS. Uh, that was, I'd say they're dedicated, but they also had you know, some other work in front of them too, just their existing jobs that they had previously. And so we also, I would say in the team that did most of this work, none of them going in had really any cloud experience. And so that was actually an interesting way we approached that I would say is we didn't actually take our most senior cloud engineers and say, you're gonna work on this project. We actually took people that we knew could learn it um, and could take guidance from some of our more senior engineers. And so basically the way we approached that was, you know, they would try to solve some of the problems because they, they knew the application best, they didn't know the cloud, and then they would consult with some of our more senior engineers that had cloud experience. And so what that allowed us to do is now we have much greater number of people who actually have cloud experience and are very knowledgeable, so. Were you adding people 
Yeah, so it was mostly just people we already had. And so uh, the more the team that actually did this work was really kind of the experts of the applications that we were moving. Um, and then we had a significant number of other people who already had cloud knowledge. And so they were already on staff and working on some of the new work already um, because we kind of had this planned out that we knew we weren't going to re-architect up front, but we should get started on what do we want that future to look like. And uh, so that was kind of happening in parallel, actually, while all this was going on. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> yep. So we we did leave on-prem up uh, during all of this, and so you could actually route to both of them, and so each one of them would have actually you'd have a DNS entry that would go on-prem, you'd have a different one that would go to the cloud, and then when we would cut, do the full cutover of an environment, we would just flip those DNS entries. Uh, as far as like moving of the infrastructure. Yeah, so I wouldn't say we had any very uh, specific tooling that we used for it. Um, most of what we did was basically took and we knew exactly how the application needed to be deployed today on-prem, and we took that and kind of redesigned it for how do we do that on AWS. So one example, like on-prem, we would we have F5 load balancers, and we would have to kind of hit the API, take them out of the load balancer when we'd go to do uh, in-place upgrades. So on AWS, instead, we just spin up new instances and kill off the old ones. Uh, and we use ELBs instead of, obviously, an F5 load balancer. So. Uh, I'd say it's pretty good mix. Um, a lot of what we had here specifically was Windows. Um, there's a fair amount of Linux, um, but we had, so having you know, three and a half years of cloud experience already under our belt, most of our Linux uh, environment already was running out in AWS. And so that was uh, in the hundreds. I don't have an exact number off the top of my head. Um, but a lot of that too, the elasticity, like there are times where we'll be running thousands and we'll then be scaling back to hundreds. And so. Yeah, definitely. I, I think what we had to our advantage was uh, almost everybody from an engineering standpoint was very excited about this. Yeah, because they all wanted to do something new and learn something new and take advantage of this opportunity. And so that was a, a big part of it. So it was pretty much from the get-go. There was very little questioning of like, oh, sh do I really want to do this? It was, they're bought in. So. Yeah, so I would say, um, no, I would say it's probably a couple months where they felt very, really comfortable, like where they're much more independent. Um, I would say today, even, I mean, the independence only goes so far, right? Like, they, they know enough, so they're, you know, six months into kind of building this knowledge, maybe nine months now at this point. Um, but there are still plenty of things that they don't know that they do need to go back to the experts. But, yeah, I would say it was a pretty good quick ramp-up time. Um, we also did some stuff with bringing uh, training on site, so AWS training to come on site, which I think helps significantly with a number of people. And so, 
Yeah, so uh, from a tooling standpoint for performance um, and monitoring. So a few different things uh, are, were baked in there. So Sumo Logic has one just because generally, you know, log aggregation and then be able to run analysis on those logs. Uh, Datadog is another one. So we uh, are still using Datadog pretty heavily. And so just general metrics so we can actually see uh, what response times are like. Those graphs right there that I showed were actually from Datadog. Um, we also have been using another tool called RunScope. And that's just general monitoring. Um, it can do a few different things, such as you know just pinging APIs uh, and checking for successful responses, but also can do more like automated testing as well. And so those are kind of the key tools. Um, CloudWatch also, I would say, would throw in there that that has provided us some really good just general monitoring of just instance health and things like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, in, in this specific case, so it, it was really focused on the database. And so we knew it was the database that was having troubles. And so we uh, also have a few different tools in place to help us with kind of the database monitoring. Um, and so we really focused our efforts there and really started to dig into, you know, what are the queries that are, you know, hanging or taking up a lot of reads uh, and locks and things like that. And so that, that really is what helped us in this specific case. So. Any other questions? All right. Well, if you have anything else, feel free to stop up or see me around. Just stop me and ask me whatever you have. So thank you for the time today.